Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where it's all about creating and selling successful new electronic hardware products. Here's your host, engineer and entrepreneur, John Till. Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where we discuss all things related to developing, manufacturing, marketing, and selling successful new electronic hardware products. Hi, I'm your host, John Teal. This is episode number one. Today, I'm speaking with successful hardware entrepreneur, Mike Morana, who co-founded a company named AdhereTech that sells a medicine adherence hardware device to major pharmaceutical companies. Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. My first question for you is, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your product? Sure. So I guess there's just a little background on me. So my, my, I started my career working for GE as a mechanical engineer in their aviation business. So I, my, my, my first love was aerospace engineering. So I worked there for several years. And then about seven and a half years ago, I started a company called AdhereTech with two of my co-founders. I'm no longer a full-time employee at the company, but I am still a board member and a technical advisor to the business. But just to give you a little bit of background, so basically AdhereTech is a startup in New York City. It is a medication adherence company. So what we do is we ultimately provide uh, adherence solutions to pharmaceutical companies for their drugs and the patients that take them. Um, And medication adherence is basically defined as a patient's ability to take their medication as prescribed. So if you have 30 doses uh, for a month and one dose a day, if you were to take all 30, that would be 100% adherence. Mm -hmm. And there's additional information that goes into calculating adherence, specifically your adherence over time, which is known as persistence. So like staying on a therapy that is a chronic therapy that you would you know, take for potentially years. So if you stay on the therapy for years, you persist on the therapy, that's also something that uh, we're looking to increase. So our company creates value to our customers by increasing adherence and persistence to drugs. And we do that through a novel technology that we put inside of pill bottles. So we make smart pill bottles. And basically what the pill bottle does is it detects when people do or don't take uh, a dose of medication, specifically pills. And it looks and works just like a normal pill bottle, except it tracks when you do and don't take medication through a variety of sensors inside the bottle itself. It had cellular connectivity, so basically connected on AT&T and any AT&T roaming partner. The first generation of the product was a 3G slash 2G product, and now today it is an LTE, CAD M1, and BIOT product. And the idea is the sensors inside the bottle would detect when you did and didn't take your medication and, gener- and send that information to our back-end platform such that we could determine what to do with that information based on the patient's profile, their preferences, the drug that they were taking, a whole bunch of things. We could basically customize an intervention uh, based on the real-time data that the bottle was giving us. So we could send you a text message reminder if you didn't take it. We could ask you why you didn't take it. We could connect that to a caregiver. We could connect that to a doctor, um, a pharmacist, etc. A whole bunch different variety of basically interventions to basically get you back on track and inspire behavior change. And so what AdhereTech did was we would basically effectively increase uh, patient adherence from like, you know, 80% to 
close to 100%, specifically for branded specialty drugs. So like oncology medications, HIV, multiple sclerosis, things like this, where the medication was really important, the value of the drug was really high, and we could incentivize the pharmaceutical company to basically pay for the service because at the end of the day, we would generate one to two additional refills per patient per year for these very high value drugs. So the way that our business model was implemented, we would go to pharma brands and we would offer them almost like a turnkey service, if you will, to patients on their their drugs. And we would say, hey, we have a network of pharmacies that we work with. And these are mostly specialty pharmacies. So they're Nine out of 10 of them are mail order facilities. So it's not a brick and mortar facility that you're used to walking into, but it's like a mail order. You might get your drugs in the mail from companies like Express Scripts, things like this. That's how specialty drugs are delivered. You can't typically fill them in a local pharmacy, believe it or not. And so those pharmacies are actually very engaged with the drugs that they distribute. They know a lot about the patients. They're more in contact with. And so we have a network of pharmacies that we have agreements with that basically offer the product, fill your prescription in our pill bottles, and set up you set up you as a patient on our platform when you go to get a refill. So the idea is that you get prescribed one of the drugs that's on our platform. You go to get your refill, most likely be a conversation on the phone with a pharmacist or a pharmacy technician who would then you know, go through the regular process of filling a prescription for you. And then they would offer you during that conversation, hey, we have this program, uh, you're eligible because you take one of the drugs that we here tech works with. You can get your next prescription filled in a smart pill bottle. It's 100% free for you. You don't have to pay for it. You don't need Wi-Fi. You don't need a smartphone. You just you have to opt in on the phone and then we'll ask you a few questions such as like what time you want to take your medication, what sort of interventions like reminders and things that you would like. They set that all up for you on the phone, they fill the bottle, and then typically the following day, they get it. And the patient would activate the bottle by pulling a tab on it. And then from that point forward, it would be active on the AT&T network and sending us data. So uh, the idea is we incentivize a pharma business or drug manufacturers to pay for this service because it increased adherence and therefore refill rates for their drugs. So it's ultimately the ROI was very high for them. um, And it really made a lot of sense with specialty drugs. So that's, that's what AdhereTech is. We're all over the country. We work with, there's about almost 10 drugs on the platform. Tens of thousands of patients use it every day. It's a really great product. And, and particularly, I like it because it's an IoT product that um, really drives a lot of value into people's lives and also is a very profitable business. Yeah, that, that's a, a really fascinating uh, business model. It's kind of different than what I was kind of was expecting. And I would say that was our primary business model. The other business models that we used and employ today are also just like in research and clinical research. So not necessarily driving adherence up up or anything like that, but more just as like a, a measurement tool for a clinical trial or a research oh. trial where they could, you know, it's, it's inc- I won't go into the details of clinical trials, but adherence typically is a very pretty valuable piece of information when evaluating the efficacy and toxicity of, of drugs that are being tested. Because yeah, otherwise it throws off all the data, obviously. Right. So, so that's, that's, you know, the, the, the technology today, honestly, is most often like 
handwritten diaries, which is crazy, right? Oh, really? Yeah. So you'll see that you still see that quite a bit. And so we're a technology that sort of like makes it easy to capture the data. Um, so, yeah, so none of what you do is consumer facing in regards to you don't market or, no. or reach out to consumers. It's all either trial companies or the pharmaceutical companies. I yeah, guess. straight. Yep, exactly. Now, ultimately, the user is a patient. So we do have to have sort of a patient facing um, mentality when it comes to the business because we have to make the product easy to use and can, you know, fit into the lives of patients. But ultimately, the paying customers are other businesses. Got you. So, it's, but as far as like uh, customer support or technical support, that's the area where you actually have to interact with the consumer. Correct. Yes. So we provide, you know, we, we can, we pick up the phone when patients either have questions mostly about the pill bottles is typically where we fit in, but we act as like sort of a connection point to them, to their pharmacy, them, to their doctor, them, to the other, other interventions to get them the information they need. So it's sort of like a communication platform as well as like an adherence platform. So it basically connects you to the the drug therapy that you're uh, normally used to taking in a more enhanced way. So a pharmacist could quickly pull up a dashboard and see that you missed the last five doses. And there's probably a really good reason for that. If they're oral chemotherapy drugs, it's most likely not forgetfulness, which most people is what, that's what most people assume we solve. And certainly is something that we do solve, but a lot of the drugs we work with, there's just a lot of complicated you know, complications are with the therapies that they're dealing with. So there might be uh, dose, dose changes, schedule changes. There might be side effects. There might be a number of reasons that a patient will go on and off of drug therapy. And we can detect that sort of in real time and get them help much faster than they would without, our, without Adhere Tech. And ultimately, over time, it improves the experience that the patient gets with that drug, thereby staying on the drug, thereby refilling on time, and overall, thereby sticking with the pharmacy that they're with, ultimately just improves their whole experience. So it's a win-win-win, I guess, for the pharmaceutical company, the, uh, the pharmacy, and then obviously the patient and yes. then, of course, your company. So I guess there's four wins. So. Yeah, yeah. And the value chain in healthcare is like a little different so than most, most businesses. So you kind of have to figure out how to incentivize. So we really went the path of like developing a single pill bottle because it makes very clear sense to the pharma company who's benefiting you know, in terms of increasing adherence to that drug, um, as opposed to like a polypharmacy solution where it'd be like a many drugs in one. So yeah, so there's, it's, a, it's a unique business model and a unique product. So do you, so you obviously make the bottles, manufacture the bottles yourself. And I'm assuming that's correct, right? That's, that's the main part of your business is to make the, the bottles themselves or is it yeah, more? Well, we don't manufacture it. We don't have a manufacturing facility. We outsource it to a contract manufacturer. Well, the, yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah, yeah but we yeah. are the OEM. Yes. Adhere Tech is the manufacturer of the pill bottle. We design, write the software and develop everything that, that touches the physical product. Um, so software and hardware is what Adheretech does. Gotcha. So is, is a lot of, and I don't know how much you can get into what your, you know, profit or where you, you make the money, but is it actually on the, the cost of goods sold and then you mark that up? Is, so is it all on the product or is there like an ongoing fee that the pharmacy has to pay or any type sure. of... Sure. Yeah. I can't specifically tell you like any numbers, but... Yeah, of course. Yeah. The value lies in proving out increases in adherence. So there is a subscription component. So basically we have a model where 
every month a patient is active, that's a, a subscription, a monthly subscription. Okay, that's and that's great. where and that's where the value is made. So um, we re, we're not like a consumer electronic where it's you know three times cost of goods sold or anything like that. It's it's really a subscription. We're hoping that patients use it for multiple years, and that's where we uh, generate our value for our company. Gotcha. That that's yep. really that's really awesome. So I, I assume you would say that a recurring business model has has been really uh, key to the the growth that you've had. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Did you, cause I mean, this is a, I, I guess this would be considered a, a medical product. Did you have to go through FDA approval and, and all that, those, those different uh, certifications? We do not have to go through FDA approval. We are a medical device in the world. I mean, I, I won't go too much into medical devices, but in the world of medical devices, there's t- in the U S it's governed by the FDA and the FDA has three classifications, one, two, and three and escalating levels of basically risk. We're considered the lowest risk. So it's class one. And most class one devices are exempt from what's called pre-market approval. So that the the process, you may have heard of it before for class one and class two devices, it's called a 510K, mm-hmm. which is a pre-market approval. So basically you have to go through and prove your equivalence to either pre-existing devices, things like this. We're, we were exempt from that process because the most class one devices are exempt. So they just they basically say the risk is low enough that you have to do just the bare minimum, which is basically register your product with the FDA, implement a few processes and procedures, and then that is basically what the FDA requires of you. I can't imagine a situation where your product could cause someone injury or or harm. Uh, I'm assuming that's part of it. And ultimately our device is really just a reminder device because it's effectively not, it's not like, you know, I like to compare it to like uh, an insulin pump, which you could, you could theoretically call an adherence product, right? But it, it, because it actually physically doses the medication to your body. We don't do that, right? So you could take the pill out and not, not use it, not consume it. You could throw it away. Ultimately what the device is doing is just generating reminders. And so that is like the category in which we fall under. So it's a class one, 510k exempt product. Gotcha. Gotcha. So there's no approval, but we are a class one device. So FDA approval is like a weird term that people often use that really doesn't apply to a whole class, most of a class of medical devices. Okay. Understood. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because you obviously, your, your, your main customer are big pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how, how did that process go when you were first starting out as far as uh, were, were they res- highly resistant? Was it difficult to, to get through to decision makers? Yes. And then also, how, how far along were you with the product? Did you have a prototype that you could show them, or was it just a, a drawing and an idea? There's, a, there's multiple parts to that answer. So first, <laughs> early, early days, our CEO, Josh, was he's a really impressive person, and he was able to basically sell our product to a customer before we even had one. Um, oh, wow. That's and, yeah. And it was, it was a good problem to have. And we basically ran a research study with uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in uh, mm-hmm. Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, we got written into a um, research project and that got approved. And they basically called us up and said, okay, we need the pill bottles. And so at that point, we're like, okay, let's go build the pill bottles, which was a crazy time. So we were able to basically get off the ground through that. And that really was a generation one design. That was something that we actually, you know, 
we spent the time to design ourselves. We worked with a small design firm. We really put it, you know, we put them together. It was, we built, you know, under a thousand of them and we basically went and got some data, which is really what we needed to then go show investors, more, more sophisticated investors that the product works and that it's usable and that patients will adopt it. And so then we kind of raised money on, a, a first generation product and some and some early actual results showing that patients with our product have higher adherence, which is ultimately what we're going out and trying to show. And so with that, that really enabled us to kind of grow the business, redesign it for mass manufacturing, much more manufacturable product. And that's what we're ultimately we've been shipping in the thousands for many years. What what when it came to penetrating pharma companies, we basically would would run pilots with them so they basically wanted to see that it worked for the patient and the therapy that we were trying to target at their business so ultimately they would there there's lots of interest right because we were the only people really to successfully get this technology in the form of a pill bottle which is really very easy for a patient to use so as long as you can get it in the hands of patients it's kind of understood that a device that can measure adherence can be used to ultimately increase adherence. So they were always interested and we ran pilots with them. So we would do a hundred patients, a thousand patients a year, six months, all sorts of different sort of pilots. And then ultimately we would get the data and then they would compare it to a cohort of patients who didn't, you know, weren't part of the pilot and they would evaluate the return on their investment and say, okay, yeah, the the value is here. These patients are more adherent compared to the average patient. We'd like to expand, right? And that's how the business would grow is we would land these pilot deals where we would run for six months, a year, hundreds of patients, thousands of patients, depending on what they wanted. And then that was how we kind of grew the company. And, you know, those were actually profitable endeavors. So they were small, but they were profitable. And we were able to really like fund the company at some points just based on those pilot projects, which um, is ultimately kind of how you have to get into that type of industry. Like I really don't, I've been in the health tech environment for almost seven years. And I haven't seen anybody just boom, you know, land an enterprise sales deal, right? It's really small pilots. We want to see if your project work, your product works. We want to evaluate it in our own terms. And then that just takes a long time, unfortunately, yeah, in, the, in the world of healthcare, right? So it's just, but once you're there, you're, you're there. So that, that that's kind of the way that works. Yeah, it seems a little yes, it did. And the, the same situation kind of you know, maybe not to the same extent, but exists with retailers. If you go pitch your product to Walmart, they're not they're gonna start off with one store, one display, right. you know, a very small test order. And if that does well as a pilot run, then they'll maybe add two stores and then ten stores and then it grows from there. So right. I think that's a general policy is you know, companies they know you have to minimize risk and the way to do that is you have to you know, always be testing. So that's yep. good. When you mentioned that, I believe Josh was the founder when he had gotten that first trial with the, the military, at the military base, did mm-hmm. you, did you even have a proof of concept prototype or anything like that? Had you really given much thought to the design of the product as far as technology or? We didn't have a lot, honestly, we really didn't have a lot. We had like maybe, honestly, it's been such a long time. I can't even remember. We had like yeah, maybe yeah. A, very, a very, very rough 3D printed, pro, like like single unit, like uh, hacking together sort of like how this thing might look. Uh, but it certainly wasn't like 
ready to deliver at any yeah. point. <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. A, yeah. it was like, okay, we really need to now, you know, go back and make make sure this product can be made. Um, so it yeah, was, but that's it was a beautiful more of a way that you concept. did it. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful strategy. I think yeah. it's always best to sell it before you, you make it. That has its own challenges, but just the fact that if they even expressed interest, that can be a, right. a huge boost. So it sounds like you you basically got a first sale or first trial run. Then then you kind of went off and you actually, then you decided, okay, I'm going to make a prototype. Then you made those prototypes and, and put them in the field and you basically started collecting data. Yep. And then, then you could use the prototype and the data to convince other pharmaceutical companies to yeah and, and more so our plan at that time was really just to raise money based on that information was because ultimately we knew that the product that we were able to put together for this first customer was not the one that was going to be the one we wanted to manufacture in high high volumes you know like there's just there's different ways to do it right there's designing a medical device and electronic product, like it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of engineering resources and, you know, you can get to a certain point, but we knew that, okay, this, this, this first generation, it's good. It has most of the features that we think it needs. We got tons of feedback on what was good about it and what wasn't good about it. And we ultimately said, okay, like this is, this isn't going to be the product that we, we live with forever, but it'll get us enough information to prove that one, it's a good, it's a good idea. And two, it works. And that three, that we're the people that can execute. And like those three things really helped us go to investors and we say, Hey, we need to build a small engineering team. We need to redesign this. We want to make it much more manufacturable. We want to really, you know, go around and find a great contract manufacturing partner. And uh, all those things really enable us to kind of design the second generation, which is ultimately the product that built the company. That's, that's great. So the, the, the first prototype was basically your version one. That, yeah. was, that was totally self-funded for the most part? We had some small angel investors. Yeah, but it was, it was pretty much you know, before any what I would call legitimate fundraising. Okay. And then, then once you got to that prototype, then you were able to you know, use that, collect data, and then use that to, to get professional or yep. larger investors. Involved. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that's great. That's sort of what I typically you know, try to recommend to people is that I don't think most people have the funding or even if they did, I don't recommend that you risk that type of money to take it all the way to the final, final market version. I think for most people, the strategy that you followed is what makes most sense is just get a, a crude, simple, lowest cost prototype that you can totally. and then get the traction with that and then use that traction to get the money to go back and make the, the final version. And I think one of the things that I've learned and ultimately it, you have to decide what's right for you and, and what you're trying to do. But like I always tell people like when you're building a hardware company, you're not just building a product, you're, you're building a machine that can build products. And, you know, everyone, fo- and it, it, you don't need to think about that initially, but you have to eventually understand that, that, you know, there's always, there's a ton of effort that the work that goes into getting your first generation product out there. But that's never, that's not the last product that you're ever going to make. That's not the last product you're ever going to design. If you're a successful business and customers like your product, 
you know, they're not going to buy it for 20 years. <laughs> they're going to buy, they're going to buy, right. They're going to buy the next thing that you make and then the better version and these things that and the market forces that change force you to make changes. So you also, you have to kind of think about it as like, okay, let me get to this point where I can build a product and sell it. But I also have to build a, a, an engine, right? A, a team that is ready to make it even better once that, we prove that that works. And so that's like, you know, the next phase of building a hardware company. And that's just hard to do, but you have to kind of like, you know, put it in the back of your head that, you know, okay, so this goes really well. I need to support the product. I need to address changes in the product. Like all of a sudden you need people to do shipping and supply chain and all these things. And then like you have, you know, so there's a lot of pieces of a hardware company. And what I always tell people is like, don't start hardware companies, start like, solution companies that use hardware because no one wants to help you build a hardware company. They want to build, help you build a solution. And uh, so if you speak in that terms, you think beyond just building the product. So, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately you have to, you can't, you can't just, you know, build one product and that, that be the end of it. You have to build a company and, you know, a a company can't get by on just one single product. Right. And these are, you know, this applies to companies that are building products that generate what I would call a lot of value, you know, more so Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about like, a widget, right? A flashlight, yeah. you know, yeah. or like I, you know, I happen to have a side business where I sell bottle openers on Amazon. There's no engineering infrastructure behind that company, right? That was something that I designed. I found a manufacturer and I, and I sell them. I don't make a ton of money, but it's not a high value product, right? It's I can only simple. imagine how simple that must have seemed to you after doing that. The, you know, <laughs> it actually wasn't that, it actually wasn't that easy because it's really, it's very, it's a cosmetic part. And, uh, you know, not that the medical device wasn't cosmetic. There's definitely cosmetic parts of it, but it's 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 trying to make a cosmetic product for very low cost is a hard thing yeah. to do. It's yeah, like, you, know, you know, I want this to be cheap, but I, I want it to look nice, right? I want a premium finish. I want it to look like it has a lot of value, and I, but I don't want to pay ten dollars for a bottle opener, right? I want to pay a dollar, yeah, absolutely, two, right? So yeah, so that that, that had is a unique, unique set of challenges. Yeah, and I think that I, I didn't mean to imply it was a simple. No, not at all. The, the one thing I, I know is there that that word doesn't even exist with. It doesn't. There's no with, nothing simple. In business of any type. I mean, even right. you know, a service business is typically considered simpler um, or easier than a hardware business, but it's still it's not simple by any means. But compared to a medical device company, that obviously has a whole other layer of challenges as yep, well. Totally. So. Yep. So you've kind of mentioned uh, your Josh as one of your founders. I'm kind of curious about your your founding team. There were three of you. What, mm-hmm. what were your? You're obviously a mechanical engineer. Sounds like Josh is maybe the marketing or the hustler. I'm not sure. Uh, so can you maybe tell me a bit about the the other founders? Sure. So we had three founders. Myself. Uh, I was the COO. Josh was our CEO, and John was our CTO. And so ultimately, we kind of had a. I mean, we did, we did a whole, wore a lot of hats. Everybody did many, many things, but ultimately Josh was in charge. You know, early days was really sales, marketing, investor relations, raising money, doing all things related to starting up a business. We had John, who's our 
CTO, he did everything when it came to software. So whether that was firmware outside the pill bottle, whether that was a website, that was a backend system, a cloud that you know could talk to our pill bottles, all of these things, he did that. And then I did the pill bottle. So I did you know mechanical design, worked with outside design firms, outside uh, consultants, electrical engineers, ID people, uh, mechanical people, manufacturing people regulatory testing, all that stuff is what I did. So we kind of had it split. Josh was out there selling, building a, a book of business for us, you know, working with investors, pitching our business thousands of times to anyone yeah. who wanted to listen, um, maybe tens of thousands of times, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, John was writing software and helping us you know, build an engineering team. So that's, that's what the three of us did. That seems to match what I kind of will tell people as an ideal founding team, someone that's the hardware guy, a software guy, and then a hustler yep. slash marketer slash sales. So it sounds like you, you fit that, that you, you had that, that dynamic with the three of you, I guess the only thing that would have maybe, but then you get four co-founders, it gets a little <laughs> crowded as if yep. you had an uh, electrical engineer co-founder probably would have been a nice addition, at least during the yep. early days of doing the hardware development. But yep. Yep. But having you as an engineer overseeing that, in, you know, the, the other engineering, that's obviously, that can be a very viable yeah. choice as well. You don't have to, as I say, you don't have to know how to do everything that you outsource, but you need to at least know enough to be able to manage it and judge the quality of that. So Absolutely. obviously you have those skills. Okay. So most of the, all the development was outsourced. Did you, or the hardware development, or I guess I should say the electronics hardware, not the the physical hardware is, is are uh, it was a, a mix. So I kind of like looked at the design. So we, were, we worked with like two design firms and some consultants, a variety of people, but certainly we did not do all of the product development in-house. I would say we did a lot more software in-house than we did outsourced. And we did a lot more hardware outsourced than we did in-house. But ultimately, I kind of treated the design firms almost as an extension of our company. So, you know, there's things that I would do. There's things that they would do. There's, you know, there's consultants that would do certain things. So it, it was kind of like an extension of our company that, you know, we worked with basically two of them. And one of them, we still have a very strong relationship with today that continues to kind of be part of our team. We still pay them like, you know, a consulting you know, fee, but uh-huh. uh, we treat them kind of like an extension of our company. And they did a lot of electrical design, mechanical design, and industrial design for us. And, I, and by this point, uh-huh. you already had outside, uh, more serious outside funding. Is that yes, correct? correct. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you went with hiring, it sounds like you worked with uh, more of a firm, an established yes. firm and not individual freelancers then. Correct. Yep. And like there was times where we did certain things with freelancers, not really freelancers, but like small, what I would call smaller consulting companies, more specialized, Uh specifically um, like antenna design, something that you won't find a lot of like full service design companies actually have that expertise in house. They might be no very knowledgeable about RF and, you know, wireless modules and things like this. But when it comes to we need to design an antenna, like actual design, that's where I worked with like a, a specialist. Yeah, that's a common one. That's a yeah. definitely within electrical engineering, RF design is very specialized. Yeah, so. and, you know, if you're lucky, you never have to, to do it. <laughs> you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, um, but that's I why I say lucky. go with modules when possible. <laughs> up to a point. But. Yeah, cellular world is the only world that I know of where you literally have to put up numbers. You have to 
actually show the performance of like so you can build a wi-fi product and have the world's worst wi-fi performance and literally no one cares uh there's no one's gonna say you can't build that product because there's uh there's just no there's no rules that say you have to have this much performance they care about certain levels right but they don't care that you have a good product except in the cellular world where there's literally performance metrics that you have to pass in order to be allowed on the carrier networks because ultimately their your device reflects not only your device but also the network that you're operating on so you can imagine if you built a, a cell phone and it had terrible reception people would either interpret that as a bad cell phone or as a terrible network and they don't want that so you have to meet their their standards and so if you take an off-the-shelf antenna and whack it into your product and it doesn't it, yeah, surely it'll work but if it doesn't meet the performance metrics they won't approve it to be on the network and then you can't deliver devices so it's it's a different it's a different beast um so i always tell people like when you're working in the cellular world you know when you select that module you also need to think about the antenna up front and really go put it in a chamber and measure the radiated power and the sensitivity and make sure you're in a ballpark that your early you know early design decisions don't put you in a corner where you can't you know, change it uh, and improve it later because you know you'll you'll be stuck so yeah yeah gotcha yeah of course of course yeah. so you you did for the cellular you had a module for the the, mm-hmm. the function itself and then obviously you just had a custom antenna i imagine yeah. with a, a smart model uh, space was uh, right. a significant factor for design on this yeah so it's very tight there's basically one there's two circuit boards a battery and an antenna in the in the second generation the 2g 3g device we actually used an off-the-shelf antenna we went through a lot of a lot of work trying to figure out where to put it in the product yeah <laughs> and then once we figured out a place that it went that naturally allowed it to be assembled we went with that off-the-shelf antenna Come, you know, two years later, AT&T says, hey, we're shutting down the 3G network. You need to switch to LTE. And then the LTE bands go down in frequency, which means the antennas go up in size. All of a sudden, we couldn't fit an off-the-shelf antenna in the place that we had the other end, the current antenna. And so we had to design a custom one to basically fit in the space that we had so that we didn't have to change the form factor of the device too much. Oh, yeah, gotcha. So, um, yeah, was the, the, literally the LTE antenna compared to the 3G slash 2G antenna is literally like two and a half times size. It's huge. <laughs> and it's mostly because it has to be a, like a very wide band antenna because I don't know how familiar you are with LTE, but for some reason, all the networks, they, like if you're a 2G and 3G device, there's basically like four or five frequencies you need to operate at. And if you're uh, an LTE device, there's like four, 30 <laughs> there's like yeah. there's so they chopped it up so much and to be able to you know be on different bands and all these things all over the world to have one antenna that can do it all is very hard yeah um, absolutely to do. did you because i've found that going from a 2g 3g solution up to lte there's a, a pretty significant uh, cost jump in yeah. this solution how how did was that like a did you have the mar- obviously you're you're not doing the the cogs mar- marking that up you have a recurring you're providing a a solution mm-hmm. so you're not maybe quite as dependent on the price of the product but right. was that at all an obstacle for you or actually believe it or not 
we actually saved a little bit of money moving to LTE because we moved to LTM and MBI slash MBIOT, mm. which those those modules are basically you know trying to come in at a at a low price point. They're very yeah. de-featured and they compared to like an LTE Cat 4 module, which has like a very high speed, yeah. you know, has you know voice over LTE, has uh, it probably has like a little Linux operating system inside of it, believe it or not. All these things, it's like really, you know, very featureful. And then LTE-M, they go to half duplex, ultra low power, you know, long range, but very, very, very slow speed. And that really enables them to kind of bring the price point down. So, it, you know, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a big difference, but it actually came down slightly going to LTE-M, which is what, you know, that's exactly what they're targeting. But ultimately, had we gone any other LTE category, it would have gone up significantly. Yeah, because I, I think you know, I, I typically will see you know, maybe a 2G, 3G solution be a sub $10, you know, maybe 5 to, to 7 8 $9, somewhere in there. And then I, I, then on LTM, I know maybe around $10, obviously the volumes matter, but yeah. Then I, I feel like for a full LTE solution, then it jumps up to like $26 or something. There's a yeah. yep. like a really big jump yep. from 3G or LTM yep. um, up to, to full LTE. Totally. Uh-huh. And we don't need, you don't, we didn't need full LTE. That's why we didn't. Yeah. Need it yeah. I mean, you're just, you know, it's like we waited. Data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were, we were sending kilobytes of data. It's really small. And, uh, you know, ultimately you don't want to put like a V8 engine on a bicycle, right? Yeah, so it's like, it's a waste. It's such a waste. The, uh-huh. One of the hardest things to do is actually select. So we, we try to build one device that can work pretty much anywhere. So getting a module that has coverage in the frequency bands on the carriers all over was a pretty was pretty challenging. But you know, they have those now. So yeah. Yep. Uh, make changes when you absolutely. Um well Mike, I, I can't thank you. This has been so great. I've I found it very useful and enlightening and I think other people I know the, uh, other people are as well. So I, I really appreciate you for sharing all this knowledge and experience that you have. It's, there's a lot of value here. Happy to do it. Okay. Talk to you soon, Mike. See ya. Have a good one, John. Bye. You, you too. Bye. Okay. I hope you found this podcast to be helpful. This was actually a shortened version of my interview with Mike Morana. The full interview is over an hour and is available exclusively to members inside the Hardware Academy. Okay. That's it for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Predictable Designs podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then definitely check out thehardwareacademy.com where you can get support from myself and other experts to help you successfully get your product developed and on the market. We have experts in electronics design, enclosure design, prototyping, certifications, manufacturing, marketing, startups, and sales. You even get private one-on-one consulting directly with me. The Hardware Academy also includes a highly active and incredibly helpful community of other hardware entrepreneurs with a wide range of experience and skills. No longer do you have to do it all alone. Now you can have a community of experts on your team. You'll also get regular in-depth training courses, workshops, product teardowns, vendor recommendations, and various resources to help you succeed with your product. Check it out today at thehardwareacademy.com.